All right. Uh, welcome, Eris. Uh, I'm speaking with Eris Levranos. Uh, this is kind of an adjunct to a substack on the very um, the very benign issue of abortion, let's say. Yeah, that's not touchy at all. So I, I wrote a substack, which I thought was sure to raise some hackles, perhaps on both sides. And I thought Eris was uniquely positioned to talk about this subject. Eris is a fully-fledged medical doctor who's been working for several years, who's gone back to law school. So he has both a uh, studied legal view of this, as well as a kind of a view from inside the medical profession, as well as I think he has some very interesting thoughts from uh, the point of view of kind of morality and society and whatnot. So he's, I thought he was the man. So Eris, do you want to just maybe give a one minute thumbnail sketch about yourself? Yeah, I really appreciate being here. It's a, a, a real pleasure and joy to talk to you, um, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. So, yeah, I've um, been practicing Emerge now for almost seven years. I have a very small family practice that I run mostly in follow-up for orphan patients who don't have family doctors, don't have primary care follow-up, ones who are particularly sick or vulnerable. Um, and then, uh, yeah, going to law school, the original impetus was to try and bring back some of that legal thinking to um, medicine, to healthcare in Canada, which is in a bit of a crisis. Um, but over the course of COVID, over the course of my um, studies, I've really um, decided that the best way to try and change the healthcare system is to hold it truly accountable for a lot of the errors that we make, whether it's through policy, systems failures, individual failures. And so I'm leaning much more towards the practice of medical malpractice and negligence law. Right on. And uh, another thing that not necessarily relevant to this conversation, but you're a new father recently. Yes, I am. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A so, little three month old um, uh, Persephone, who we have affectionately dubbed Perry. Yeah. So she's the light of my life. She's the most amazing thing in my world. That's for sure. Lovely. Lovely. Well, congratulations. Thank um, you. And I appreciate you doing this because I know you're in exams for law school. So I'll, I'll, I'll get going. Um, so so firstly, this is all precipitated, this discussion and the whole kind of recent uproar on abortion. It come, they, the issue comes and goes in, in and out of the public consciousness over the years. But um, it's, recently there was a decision called the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court of the U.S., or SCOTUS, we'll call it for this conversation, Supreme uh, Court of the U.S., um, and I know you had thoughts that were probably similar to mine on that decision. It was roundly criticized by Trudeau and those of similar political uh, stripes. But what are your thoughts on the Dobbs decision? Do you want to give us a little, uh, maybe just a brief thumbnail on Roe versus Wade, what Dobbs was, and why you think it was maybe an okay decision, maybe the right decision? Sure. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, primarily, um, I celebrate the decision of Dobbs. That is, I am very, very glad for the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Now, we have to sort of like start with a caveat that it isn't really um, something for me or you to celebrate or to criticize or condemn. It is the exercise of judicial authority that is um, properly exercised. So whether, even if we disagreed with it, it's not really our position to criticize or condemn it. Just approaching it very academically, I would say, I would consider it a huge success, legally speaking. And the reason for that has nothing to do with abortion itself. That is one of the big misnomers. That's a big mistake that abortion is being tossed at Roe and at um, Dobbs. And that's improper because really the issue uh, with Roe and then with Dobbs has to do with how abortion law 
was um, created. Just like the United States, just like Canada, just like a lot of the Western world, we have a separation in the functioning of the judiciary from the legislature. These are di distinct and different bodies in our societies. It is wrong for one or the other to commandeer the powers that are given to the other side. And so in, in short, the problem with Roe is just that, that it was a gross overstretch of the judicial authority to create a quote unquote constitutional right where no such right exists. Even the proponents of Roe and uh, the uh, detractors of Dobbs, even they do not think that it was particularly strong uh, legal theory. They thought that the consequence of the process was admirable, but that the process itself was not. And you know, one of my one of my um, mentors is uh, prone to saying that. Generally speaking, thinking of things in terms of consequences is never ideal. If you or I were to sit here and talk about how many immigrants we want in Canada every year, there is no number that's appropriate. Whatever the best process is, however many such immigrants we are uh, we accept, is totally appropriate. It could be 100,000, it could be 1,000, it could be a million. It makes no difference to me, as long as we recognize that the process is as, um, as perfect as it can be. And so Roe basically undermines that judicial process. That was the big problem with it. So the way that they went about doing that was they, um, in one of the constitutional amendments, they in, inserted the idea of what's called the zone of privacy. That there are certain places and um, content in which it is taboo for the government to intervene. Now, along that, within the zone of privacy, they then went on to suggest that certain things process-wise are included in that. And so alongside something that didn't already exist in the Constitution of the United States, they embedded that an abortion fits within this privacy doctrine, which it itself doesn't really exist in this amendment. And so that's kind of how it went about. Now, a certain amount of legal um, uh, process or let's say literary license of the judiciary is okay, but this was in flagrant gross disregard for what the normal process was. At that time, it was not settled that the um, United States had a consensus on abortion. The vast majority of states in their common law and even in um, statute had it illegal. And so what Roe did was it took away all that authority and said, no, sorry, too bad. This is now settled. It's part of a constitutional right. The burden, the standard by which a constitutional right can be set in the United States is very, very high. This is the whole talk in the United States of the filibuster, that you have to cross this large threshold in order to be able to pass a constitutional amendment. So the, as you can see, the judges at that time, 50-something years ago, almost 50 years ago, they took away all of that necessity, all that process burden, and said, you know what, good enough, let's make abortion um, legal. Now, there were some other caveats about when and how, when it can be um, criminalized and how you can go about making regulatory burden in the first trimester, second versus third, or viability further on down the line, whatever the case might be. But those are sort of more complicated issues, um, legal issues afterwards. But suffice to say that the, the underpinnings of Roe and then Dobbs has nothing to do with abortion. It has to do with process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to 
bring it down to simplify it for my my simple brain. So I guess maybe the misunderstanding that some people have about what happened is they look at the role of the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the U.S., to set law that is, quote unquote, right, i.e., the judges should use their own morality and judgment to set laws. But my understanding, and this is where I want you to correct me, is the it's up to the legislatures of the various states to set laws. It's up to the Supreme Court to say whether that law is constitutional or not. So, for instance, at this point, with the protections in the Constitution, you could not say we are not going to give jobs to short people. We're only going to give jobs to tall people because that's discrimination based on a body characteristic. So that's clearly set out in the Constitution. So if, if a state passed that, that could be struck down by the Supreme Court. But there is something like if we if somebody said, I want to only employ balloon clowns who can blow up balloons, I'm only going to employ them that have really good makeup and fuzzy nose, that would be okay, because that's not a protected characteristic. Is that, is that right? And so yeah. the Supreme Court could strike down one, but not two. Right. Yeah. So the um, the Supreme Court, the federal, is a federal body. And so their job is to uphold the Constitution. Anything that is not a guaranteed right in the Constitution that the Supreme Court does not have auspice over can come or go. And this is basically the topic of the division of powers. That if you are going to legislate a power that doesn't belong to you, Supreme Court can strike that down. On the flip side, if this is something that is in your purview or your authority, then it has to be an elected body that creates such a law. So that's how you've highlighted the two areas in which um, Roe was, let's say, uh, improper legal authority. The first is that this whole zone of privacy, all this kind of um, legalese jargon doesn't exist constitutionally. And as such, it should go down to the state level to be uh, legislated. That way, if a state that's uh, far left leaning, like the Democrats in California want to enact um, abortion laws, they are welcome to. And if Texas chooses uh, to criminalize it, then they are welcome to. But you also have the other option that the feds can insert it into the constitution. And the Supreme Court permitted that in no way, shape, or form did they deny that in their recent decision, Dobbs. They said, if you want to do this, go right ahead, but do it properly. Don't ask us to do it for you. Mm. So, you know, uh, I like to quote that Kanye West has a great line, you know, do you have the power to let power go? That's really what we're looking at here. The Supreme Court gave up the authority that they never really had and repealed the decision that they should never have made telling con the, the federal branch, right, uh, Congress, both houses of Congress, um, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate, that they can pass any legislation that they want. Or if they fail to, it has to go back down to the state level. In Canada, we have the same principles. And so mm -hmm. that's why, whether you are pro-life or pro-choice shouldn't matter because what we don't want is a group of seven, eight, nine men at that time, you know, making a decision that actually should have been a group of elected representatives who can be held accountable through an electoral process. So if Texas in five years from now or 10 years from now says, you know what, your criminalization of abortion is antithetical to our Texan values. Great. You have an election. 
you bring in new legislatures, they create a new law, and everything is fine and dandy. That is totally appropriate. That is what we should all want from our, our political process. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'll, th- I'll throw this out and you can give me your thoughts on two things. So, so firstly, I think a lot of Canadians don't realize the, the U.S. Uh, was created very differently than us. The whole idea of the U.S. was to get away from centralized power. And so there was very little power given to the federal government. It was a loose voluntary amalgam of states who agreed to be part of the, you know, this new federation called the United States of America. And for the first 50 or more years, it was in existence. It was talked about in the plural, the the United States of America are not the United States of America is. Um, So that's interesting. The other thing, you know, to contrast against Canada, we seem to broadly accept now that the Supreme Court of Canada can more, more or less create legislation. So when you look at some big decisions recently, things like, let's say, native fishing rights. Um, what's another another big one? Oh, let, uh, let's say assisted uh, dying, the euphemism, or, or you know, assisted suicide, another way to talk about it. Those, those were actually not created by Parliament because Parliament didn't want to go near them with a 10-foot pole. They were nu- nuclear waste to, to talk about. So they kind of put it off and put it off, and then it goes to our Supreme Court and in Canada, like our, our Supreme Court, we, we don't seem to have a problem. They don't, they certainly don't have a problem with creating legislation out of a small group of appointed people who are very political. When you look at who gets appointed and why there's a lot of liberal donors in the last few years who ended up as judges. And prior to that, it was a lot of conservative donors. So it, it's a political position and then they can more or less make legislation. I think that's, I don't know if you agree, but I think that seems fundamentally different than the U.S. model. Uh, well, I guess in both it is possible. Um, judges have um, the capacity in Canada to apply certain doctrines that allow them to insert some ideology but these are not necessarily unique to Canada. So in Canada, judges can take what's called judicial notice of a topic where something is such settled science in a field or where the evidence for it is so um, uh, obvious, ubiquitous, apparent that they, can, um, that they can assume certain facts. Now, those can or cannot be challenged. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can, depending on which court is doing it, who has the authority and so on. But you can imagine how that can cause sticky situations because you know, quote unquote, science is never really settled. And so the, a, a large judicial precedent based off of something like that in judicial notice can be quite um, uh, frustrating to a huge group or a huge population uh, in Canada. The other possibility is when they are reviewing legislation to see if it is or if it isn't constitutional, if it is or if it isn't valid law, right? If it doesn't violate our principles and our constitution, then um, if they have found that it is invalid, if law is unconstitutional, they have the authority to read in or read down certain provisions and say, you know what, what we think legislature meant is this. And then by doing that, they can sort of tweak law so that it becomes constitutional. Now, in theory, supposedly, these are very high standards that are supposed to be met. But I mean, like there are a lot of legal mechanics that can be implemented, there is jargon, there's all kinds of other things that can be sort of massaged so that these things become less rigorous. And then as a consequence of that, ideology of the judiciary can really insert itself in uh, legislation. So it's, a, it's tough because certainly the process of the appointment of judges is not something that is 
like we as a country we should look at that and try to make it as rigorous as possible for sure but that being said the pendulum swings back and forth you know like currently in the united states there is a uh, preponderance of conservative republican leaning uh judges in the supreme court but over time that will swap and the pendulum goes back and forth and so that is a little bit of that is is acceptable but the so, I mean, like, again, process matters here. And if the process is balanced over, you know, decades or generations, then there should be some equilibrium that's set between that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, one of the things, too, maybe, and again, I'll sort of make this a, as a statement, but feel free to say if you agree or disagree, but um, there's a legal term called stare decisis, at least I think that's how it's pronounced. I've only read it, but it's the the concept that precedent should largely remain supreme because otherwise it creates an instability. You know, if, if a, a court, especially a higher court, makes one decision one year and a different decision a couple of years later, it throws the country in a bit of turmoil. So it's this concept that we should be very, very, very careful not, not to turn over, not to overturn previous decision. But that is not supreme in the U.S. Supreme Court, as I understand it. And uh, there's a long history of decisions being overturned. And one of the things, um, the, the argument that we shouldn't have overturned Roe versus Wade because it's wrong to overturn something, I don't like that one because uh, the Supreme Court of the US at one point upheld the right of slave owners to chase down and arrest their, their escaped slaves. They also upheld things like segregated schools and segregated other institutions. So I'm glad that they can revisit the constitution constitutionality of something and overturn it. Um, yeah. I don't know if this you was, feel the same. Thomas's contribution to um, the Dobbs decision, saying that stare decisis is just that it's supposed to be a precedent, but precedent can be overturned. And uh, Canadian law also recognizes that that there's an evolution to the evidence. There is an evolution to societal values and morals. There is. And so a little bit of overturning of what has previously been decided um, because the reasons for that decision have changed is totally reasonable and appropriate, right? Like we do need some evolution, but those kinds of things should be, those kinds of things, the threshold should be high and the application should be only where it is most, um, most reasonable. So for example, if the United States, if the SCOTUS wanted to change the constitution, that is not the quote-unquote stare decisis that you would want from the Supreme Court. If you want them to change a much smaller decision the Supreme Court has made, fine. And so that's why when it comes to Dobbs or the repeal of Roe v. Wade, yes, it is, it is precedent. It is stare decisis. However, it was improper then. And so the removal of it doesn't actually affect the Constitution. So it's not like now that this happened an amendment of the constitution is ignored. It isn't at all. The constitution has not changed at all. So, um, and in fact, more so than that, they did not just, they did not use this opportunity to condemn abortion, to criticize abortion, to outlaw it in the States. They didn't weigh in on it at all. They only weighed in on the process by which this decision was made. And so that's why many States, I mean, like, you know, how can Roe v. Wade have been repealed, but then California have, even stricter opportunities for abortions. It's because the Supreme Court did not criticize or condemn such laws at all. So there is a tremendous hysteria out there that is uh, uh, not appropriate, that's not justifiable given the decision made by um, SCOTUS. 
Okay, thank you. So getting into some of the weeds of this issue, like kind of moving from the legal to the to the moral front, I, you know, and again, I think you and I overlap somewhat on this because we both, I think we both swing a little bit towards the libertarian end of the spectrum, i.e. leave people alone to lead their own lives as much as is possible, right? But that, of course, uh, doesn't, that, of course, isn't absolute. You, you, when you live in a society with other people, if you live upstream from somebody and you're pouring uh, your sewage into the river where they drink out of, or if you live in a big apartment building and you like to play around with dynamite, th those things, you know, you don't have a kind of a right to put other people at great risk like that. But the difficulty with abortion, in, in my view, is um, and I think that I've never really met somebody who said a mother's right to choose should be absolute. Uh, like if a woman's 39 and a half weeks pregnant and her boyfriend leaves her and she has a change of heart and says, I don't want this baby. I've never met anybody who says, oh, it's fine for her to, to abort, uh, you know, three days before she was going to deliver. I've, I've just never met one of those. So it's not as simple as it's a woman's right to choose. At, at some point, the baby gains its own set of rights as a, an individual, as a human I guess the question is where, and do you have any thoughts on how we ever draw that line? Do you think we ever can? So, um, yeah, so there are two things to say. The first is that there is an idea that the principles of fundamental justice um, is an important one. So the PFJs are the ideas that uh, sort of underpin how laws have to be made and formed. So, for example, if you roll a stop sign that cannot be met with going to jail, Right? That is completely disproportionate. That violates our principles of fundamental justice. So one such possibility for a principle is the principle of harm. That if I'm not harming anyone, what's the problem? Why can't I do it? So you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, Canada legislates things that are um, not harmful all the time. So we do not recognize the harm principle as a principle of fundamental justice. For example, incest, for example, cannibalism, right? If I was going to say like me and my loved ones have the practice of going and um, digging up cadavers and eating them, I'm not har harming anyone, but society says this is immoral. Mm, so we don't want that, okay? So that's an important sort of framing to this question. The next question is, so if we're looking at abortions, you could say something like the fetus isn't a person. There is no harm happening or below 15 weeks. We don't recognize its personhood. That is an insufficient argument because there is the possibility that collectively we do or do not find it immoral enough. So that's one big component of this. The second component is um, when do you recognize it as a person? In Canada, we have no laws. However, it is regulated by our protective, uh, our, um, protective our college um level, right? Like uh, medical malpractice and um, our regulatory authority says, you know, these are the conditions under which you can and cannot choose to have an abortion. This is what's safe. This is what isn't and so on. So going to a family doctor's office and being like, yeah, you know, here, take a lot of this teratogenic um, poison and you're 39 weeks, that would be violating of our professional standards. So it's not appropriate. However, under the certain right conditions that the thing would be possible legally. So how do I frame this in general? In general, I frame it as we have the moral argument that could be religious in nature, that could be philosophical in nature, whether or not it's appropriate at the time of conception, the heartbeat, viability, whatever. But then we have a legal standard. 
and the legal standard is a completely separate question. Because should we have laws that bar, that criminalize all abortions after a certain period of time? What we would ideally want, I think the vast majority of people would say in society today, especially in Canada, what we would ideally want is that abortions should be available basically whenever, but that nobody exercised that right. That's kind of what the hope is. Now you find all kinds of crazy things online of people glorifying abortions. I've had five, I've had six, I love it. I'm gonna have as many as I want. Okay, but those are fringe extremists. So in the United States, they say things like in some states, the heartbeat bill. Anything before this is not so morally objectionable or is not so that, that we want to create laws around it. So you can see sort of that is the nature of the kind of conversation that we would, that we would have. So, yeah, I guess it, it brings to mind Bill Clinton's famous uh, quote, uh, abortion should be safe, legal and rare, you know? Right. Yeah. And we've. it sounds like, uh, yeah, on the extreme pro-choice end, we kind of leave out the rare part of that. And right. say it's and just so fine at a time. The, the needle, the, the pendulum has swung far, too far in one direction. You don't hear any of the left-wing... Um, authority, parliamentarians, judges, lawyers, pundits, whatever, talking about that the that right should be circumscribed at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, they're like, how dare you even ask? They should always have. It's only between them and their doctor. But then you have things like, I'm pretty sure it was the gubernatorial candidate of Virginia or Pennsylvania who was saying, even within the first week of life, that you should mm -hmm. be able to abort a child, like postpartum. I mean, like, mm -hmm. so the, they have completely tarred the nature of the conversation instead of having a, a philosophical, moral, legal conversation about what is and isn't life, what is and isn't important morally, um, the nature of the conversation has shifted dramatically. And you can see that in the discussions about Roe, because Roe didn't condemn abortion at all. People are trying to kill Justice Kavanaugh. People are condemning Clarence Thomas and calling him horrendous racial slurs online. And all that they said was just go back and decide amongst yourselves properly, according to a process that respects our constitution whether you want to do that federally or at the state level. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me, and uh, again, I'll kind of throw this out, feel free to tell me what you think. The, um, I, I've heard uh, some pundits have posited that the, the Democrats, like Roe v. Wade would have been 50 years old next year if it, had have, if it hadn't been overturned. So the Democrats have had numerous occasions in those 50 years where they had both the presidency and both houses and could have passed any reasonable legislation. But what happened each time they got started on encoding a certain set of abortion rights was that the extreme fringe took over and did things that made the bill unpalatable, not only to many people on the right wing, you know, to, to use this stereotypical language, but even to some on the left. So they probably could have passed a bill that said, you know, we agree with somebody's right of abortion up to whatever, let's say 18 weeks or 16 weeks or whatever you, you, you want to take. But when they tried to say we want to have abortions up to 30 weeks, 32 weeks, we think there should be no limit at all. It should be just completely up to the woman. Then a lot of people fell off the rails of that. And it's interesting to me that we have kind of, again, something that's been missed by the Canadian media, which has been quite hysterical over Dobbs, is that 
the much of the U.S. is already far more liberal for uh, on abortion than European countries, which we consider very liberal. So in Europe, many countries are li limited to 12, 14, 16 weeks. Uh, even, you know, the socialist bastions like uh, Scandinavia, many of them have a 16 week limit. Um, so it's not like an abortion free for all, even in these countries that are, are quite socialist and what we call left wing. So, uh, yeah, there's the the uh, the posited reason why the Democrats didn't really want to put something through is it's a great wedge issue and it really helps them drum up donations because if if everybody's terrified of the Republicans taking away abortion rights, they'll donate to the Democrats, which they which they actually went out. Uh, Biden sent out a missive just after Dobbs saying this is proof that you need to donate to us right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it, it's such a hot topic that you're you're absolutely right, and like those th there is a huge extremes component to it, and a lot of the media does not do justice to that by by the world standards, let's say the civilized Western world standards. Um, a lot of the uh, abortion legislation or permission, I should say, in the United States would be seen as completely barbaric, completely uh, mm -hmm. antithetical to societal values. Um, so that's an obvious one. And then you have to ask, like you said, why not uh, codify it when they had the numbers to pass the filibuster in um, under Obama's uh, era? And you're right. I mean, like whether it's because it's a drum beating issue that mobilizes the troops to come out and vote or whether it's because of the threat that looms that you can drive up um, Donations. I mean, like it's probably a little bit of everything. There's probably so many reasons why they want to continue to maintain a hot button topic. You're absolutely right. But certainly by the world standards, um, I mean, like, you know, abortion, well, if you're a third trimester, I think 99% of people would think of that as being absolutely barbaric. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I'll ask you to take out your crystal ball. Um, a number of states had, they called them trigger laws. They were set to go into effect if Roe v. Wade got overturned. So it looks like probably somewhere around 10 of the 50 states will tighten or significantly tighten their abortion laws. Uh, they will be far more, far more restrictive or a little bit or far more restrictive. Um, do you see, do you see that being a big trend overall, or do you think things won't change much in the U S to lay of the land or what's your prediction? Yeah. I mean, like, I think that the states, I mean, like going down to the state level, um, you have so much more opportunity for nuanced conversation from legislatures who are held accountable that all of a sudden people are going to more or less get what they want. So I think that the number of people for whom their state has legislation that they disagree with and for whom it is a number one uh, voting priority is exceptionally few, exceptionally, exceptionally few. So the number of influenced voters is going to be very, very low. So how much of a difference is this going to make in the context of everything else we're seeing in the world, whether it's off the COVID policy, um, whether it's inflation and economic collapse, energy, uh, um, manufacturing independence, whatever the case might be, you know, for someone in Texas, for example, who is wants abortion laws that are more permissive that person is gonna vote blue before, they're gonna vote blue now, that is not much of an independent voter who's suddenly gonna be like, you know what, in the context of everything else that's happening, this is now gonna switch my vote. So I don't think that it's going to make that big of a difference. The number that I've heard is that in terms of the number of people who have abortions in the United States per year, then this, the repeal of um, Roe is only going to affect about five to 10% of them. And most of those people are still very, very easily um, 
they can travel across state line and get the abortion they want. So the degree of inconvenience that this law is going to cause, the friction in society that's going to make this a, a, a top priority for voting seems very low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last uh, last thing that I, I, I will throw out there, um, it's interesting to me, you know, there's, there's a spoof headline from uh, the National Public Radio or there, you know, which is the US equivalent of CBC, which tends to be very left-wing. The, the spoof headline is world ends, minorities and women hardest hit, you know, and uh, it seems like the media can take every issue now and twist it into a race or gender issue. And uh, the abortion issue to me, it's, it's a, you know, it's largely a women's issue, but it's, it's an all of us issue because uh, there's two, takes two people to get pregnant, right? Um, the, the thing that the media has injected into it is that it's more of an issue for minorities since they have, are more likely to have abortions. The question in my mind, you know, and it's a question for you is, is it more, is it more racist to say we want to limit abortion, which minorities are going to have more of, or is it more racist to say we want to have free abortions, which minorities are going to have more of? Yeah, sure. So um, you're, you're, you're right. The pro-choice camp thinks that this repeal is very, very um, harmful to minorities, and the pro-life camp thinks that this repeal is very, very beneficial to minorities. So you're, you're, you're correct. I mean, like, it really depends on which side you look at it. Of course, you know, quote unquote, being forced to have children could be a bad thing. But if you are going to use that or see that as the cementing of a nuclear family, the encouragement of personal responsibility, the um, um, promoting the responsibility that the father has to their children, then there could be major benefits that develop from this, not to mention the population growth is very helpful, not only as a voting block, but economically and so on, right? Like population helps. So more Black Americans, you know, more Latino Americans is very helpful to those demographics. Why wouldn't it be? So both sides have, a, let's just say, a, a, a rational basis for why they think that this is so harmful or beneficial. I think only time will tell. My position on this, generally speaking, I tend to be a lot more pro-life. I think that there is something to be said about encouraging, accepting humanity, growing populations. I think I think humans are, are great, wonderful by and large. I like people being around me. Um, so I tend to lean more pro-life. That being said, I also recognize that there is a legal responsibility to not overly and unduly burden women who are pregnant. And so having a heartbeat bill or an eight-week bill is probably something with which the morality of it I could, I could support and get behind. So we'll probably sort of find some kind of fine-tuned, nuanced perspective within the states, and then the minorities will have a net positive, I imagine, by restricting this a little bit. <laughs> right on. Um, I think that's all about all I want to ask you. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't brought up? Uh, only that you can see really what the um, influence of the media is with this, right? Instead of people, um, especially in Canada, celebrating a um, Supreme Court of a land of our neighbors, relinquishing authority where they should never have had it, and returning authority to voting bodies um, at a local level, right? The principle of subsidiarity, very important here, where the lo most local government should be the ones to make these kind of decisions. So instead of celebrating that, we have things like, you know, um, uh, doctors, uh, organizations saying, well, we abhor this, we detest this idea. Well, like, look, you, you have lost the entire nuance of the conversation here. You are adding to the hysteria 
fostered by the media. Instead of saying that, listen, we are pro-abortion, maybe your position may not be your position. Listen, we are pro-abortion. We like our abortion rights here in Canada. We are very, very glad to see that um, voted, um, voting electorally uh, voted in the um, uh, accountable, transparent legislative bodies are resuming their authority to determine healthcare decisions in their states is a good thing. But no one is having that conversation because it's such a heated issue that everybody wants to rally and uh, claim a victory or uh, major harm for their team. And that does a tremendous disservice. The, it makes sense coming from the media, clicks, attention seeking, that kind of thing. But when you see it filtering from there into academia, regulatory bodies, um, medical bodies, the um, American Medical Association, whether it's CMPA, Doctors Nova Scotia, or whoever, I mean, like that really hurts the credibility of these organizations. Instead of coming at this with the legal perspective that's appropriate, with the medical perspective that's appropriate, I and mean, that you hear things like, how dare they get involved in what happens with the doctor's office? You and I both know that there's a million ways that the government is involved what happens in the doctor's office. So mm -hmm. suggesting that how dare they infringe in this regard, where they infringe in many other regards appropriately, these are just ridiculous arguments that completely undermine their credibility. So the, the, the major consequence of this um, apart from the hysteria of the extremes to the left and to the right on the issue, is unfortunately further discrediting of the institutions that we that build our society. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it is It is kind of a funny thing, the, the argument we should never infringe on anybody's rights just after we forced a whole country of people to get vaccinated, many of them against their will. I mean, like, you know, the irony is palpable. It, it is, it is. Uh, well, listeners, I appreciate your time and your thoughts, uh, and it's really good to have a more studied legal perspective on it. Um, and for anybody listening to this, just to, to sort of, there may be some people who listen to this podcast, uh, you can read my thoughts at paradox.substack.com. Um, but and you may already have linked theirs, so you may have already read my thoughts, but uh, if not, please take the time. Uh, my position is actually somewhat nuanced because I have uh, I'm generally pro-choice, but I definitely have some very significant pro-life sympathies. And I don't think it should be a free-for-all where we just say a woman can make her own decision, period. So I, I think it's much more complicated. And it's also part of the reason I'm pessimistic. And I think this is just yet another round in a 150, 200, 300-year-old argument about uh, abortion and its appropriateness and whatnot. I, I don't think I don't think this is the end of it. I don't think you and I have solved it, but at least we've highlighted some of the some of the ideas around it and some of the legality. So thanks for the time. I appreciate it. I really appreciate being here. Nice to talk to you. All right. Thanks. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. See you, Chris. Bye bye.